Imagine, you control a whole community of Romans. You urge them through their daily business. You kill them off here and there. And when their society collapses into chaos or authoritarianism, you wipe it out and start again with a brand new community. You're not a monster raising ancient zombies or causing human suffering. You're a digital archeologist using agent models to study the patterns and networks that emerge from archeological research. Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. And I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Sean Graham. Dr. Graham is a professor at Carleton University, where he teaches digital archaeology and digital humanities. Recent work includes studying the online trade in human remains, developing graph-theoretic representations of historic events, and publishing two books, Failing Gloriously and An Enchantment of Digital Archaeology. He is the founder and editor of the open access journal Apoesen, a journal for creative engagement in history and archaeology. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just really excited to talk about your work in digital archaeology. I want to start with the whole concept of practical digital necromancy because it seems very core to your work and on its face it seems a little shocking and hard to understand. Thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk about work. Even something that sounds as weird or possibly grim as practical necromancy, it might not be the most friendly of phrases, but it's one that I coined when I was working with my students to grab attention and to capture the imagination. A practical digital necromancy means that we're trying to raise ghosts of the dead. We're trying to raise simulacra. We're trying to raise creatures that will act in certain ways so that we can study them, so we can see what happens next. It's kind of hard to do experiments on large populations of people. So doing it in silico, doing it in a digital framework is generally, ethically, a much safer bet. I get that you want to do this because there's ways of sort of running these experiments or setting up certain situations and then seeing what happens. But what is it that you're looking for? So I became interested in this whole approach, this digital necromancy, this agent-based modeling, because as an archaeologist, I was kind of frustrated. When you go out into the field, when you're doing archaeology, you're finding just traces of individual actions. But we want to tell stories about how civilizations rise and fall, what the culture is like, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a child in these different cultures. And, you know, how do we get from something like traces in the dirt to something as complex as society? So there's lots of different levels of complexity in social organization in the world. And moving from individual actions to understanding that higher level stuff when you're stuck in that traffic jam and you don't know why it just happens, right? But you've made your little local maneuver. You had to step on the brake because the idiot in front of you is swerved, kind of. 
Well, then there's that knock-on effect. And from all of these little micro-interactions of you, me, and Ellen in our cars, we end up with this larger thing, this traffic jam that's moving backwards down the highway relative to the way that we're moving. There's a couple of different things. There's the stories that we tell about the past as archaeologists, as historians, which are based on these little individual interactions that we see. So we have these things, right? And we tell these stories. Here's how it works. You try to describe what all of the little rules are that could lead to this behavior that you're finding on the ground. And then you create a population of individuals with all sorts of different characteristics. You give them these rules and you watch how they interact. Like the Sims. Yeah. I mean, are we talking about the archaeological version of the Sims here? Yeah, just with poorer production values. Yeah. Until you get better funding. Exactly. With more funding, you just watch what we can do. Speaking of which, you know the Lord of the Rings films? They go on forever. But the battle scenes, all of those little characters, those are all CGI characters. All of those are being powered by an agent-based model at the background telling them how to react. So they give them these rules, and all of these individual software creatures have a different suite of characteristics. And so they interpret those rules differently depending on their location in the physical space of the simulation or their relationship in the social space of the simulation. And from all of that, you get these emergent behaviors. So as an archaeologist, we really want to talk about all those emergent behaviors, but all we have are these little different rules. But we can rerun it under all sorts of different conditions. And then you end up with this landscape of possible things that could have been. If the stories that we tell about the past are true, and if we have translated them correctly into code, then somewhere on this landscape of possibilities is something that occurs that matches what happened archaeologically or historically. And then we can use that to better understand things. We're simulating our own understandings of the past and a simulation can fail in all sorts of interesting ways, but one of the ways they often fail is because we didn't really specify the rules well enough. And that's because the just-so stories that we traditionally tell that seem to make so much obvious intuitive sense actually have a whole bunch of embedded assumptions and tacit ideas about how the world works. And so we have to go back and find out more about these things. When you do this agent modeling, you're staring into the machine, but the machine stares back into you. When you say an agent, you mean a piece of code that acts semi-independently. Exactly. The sim that you trap in the swimming pool, the little orc at the battle of whatever the hell it is in Gondor. This kind of approach to simulation is used in video game. I'm curious if you would just tell us a little bit about your Roman patronage simulation, because I just think that's so interesting. Through an interesting and quite possibly boring sequence of events, I ended up being Eastern Canada's only stamped Roman brick expert from the first to third centuries upstream of Rome on the west bank of the Tiber. Like, you can imagine the employability of that. The thing with this, right, Roman power is tied to the landed aristocracy, and they got to make their money somehow. And one of the ways that they do this is through exploiting the natural resources of their estates, one of which is clay. Rome, famously a city of bricks, covered in marble. And these bricks have maker's marks on them. And each maker mark, in different combinations, can give you information about the estate, the workshop, the landowner, the date. And it occurred to me that I could actually use this information to stitch together networks. And so I could get a network perspective on patterns of landholding over time 
upstream from Rome, so where all these aristocrats have their villas. And I wanted to figure out if I could reanimate these networks. So I created agents and I gave them knowledge of each other and how they are interconnected. And I wanted to see what would happen. Then I thought, well, what happens if you can't get access to networks of patronage and, and power? What happens if you get shut out? So from there, I kept developing this simulation such that I started from these different positions of social relationships that I know from different time periods. And I say, okay, these are the rules of Roman social behavior. And these are the rules for why you might want to bust out of these relationships. And so I, I ran it and it was pretty neat. I had little um, status messages that would pop up occasionally and it would say things like Roman 23 is about to kill Roman 42. And you could run it under different economic conditions. So we had a kumbaya world where everything was easy to get along and we had a sackcloth and ashes world where no matter what you did, you would always lose the economic gain. And you would expect it to collapse under that condition and you would expect it to be really easy under the kumbaya world. But what would happen is that there would be a range of conditions where in kumbaya conditions, violence would emerge. And there would be a range of settings in the sackcloth and ashes world where stability would emerge. So those two areas, then that becomes something to investigate further. Under what conditions can things be so horrible and yet everything endure? Or the opposite. Exactly. Like the way 2020 has run for two years now. It's like you're grappling with really big questions, which is under certain social and cultural and maybe even natural resource pressures, how do massive numbers of people behave with each other? I think archaeology and archaeologists in general have a lot to say to this current moment when we think about climate pressure and think about how people get along or not or live in parallel but disjointed worlds. There's a lot an archaeological mindset and approach to all of this could offer. There are far better archaeologists than me who are working on things like this. I'm fascinated by a point you made in an enchantment of digital archaeology about how archaeologists are really bad at producing the stories that make people excited. And there's a persistent sort of Indiana Jones-like expectation. And then the reality is there was some evidence of a hearthstone at four meters and above that was sterile soil. And there's no like storytelling that happens on the level that most archaeologists are expected to operate. Exactly. Sarah Perry, who is now Director of Education at the Museum of London Archaeology Service, has a fantastic paper from a few years ago called The Enchantment of the Archaeological Record. And of course, you can see how I took inspiration from that. But in that paper, Sarah talks about how archaeology, professional archaeology, academic archaeology is always in crisis mode. We got to save it. We got three days to save it is the time team slogan. We got to go in. You got to dig it up. We got to do something with it. And it's kind of the equivalent of eat your Wheaties, right? So archaeology is this thing that's good for you, but it's like broccoli and we'll cover it with chocolate occasionally, but it is still this thing. And if we're always in crisis mode and we're always crying wolf, then eventually nobody listens to you. And the reason that archaeology is like this comes out of the way it professionalized in the 70s and the 80s and the need to fit professional archaeology into planning frameworks and environmental assessments and as something that had to be mitigated. 
it was never something that added wonder or value to a project. It was always something that cost somebody real money. And there's a reason why there are tropes like the Indiana Jones thing and the adventure thing. And part of that is because the early archaeologists did a lot of public outreach. They talked to people. They were in the newspapers. They were on early television. And people turned to archaeology for a bit of mystery, for a bit of wonder, for a bit of something amazing in the world. There's an archaeologist named April Besa who does a lot of interesting work in community archaeology, but she looks at ghost hunters. So ghost hunters come into a community, and the first thing they do is they sit down and they listen. And they hear what people have to say about their community. They hear about the stories. And then they say, well, here are some tools that we have that could help us. And they talk with them, and they work together, and they come out with this kind of engagement around the past and about the stories that are important in a community that an archaeologist would give their eye teeth for. But what do we do? We come in and we tell you, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And especially in a context like North America, where the large majority of archaeologists are white, what are they studying? Well, an enormous number of archaeologists in North America are working on indigenous materials. And sometimes they work with indigenous communities, and sometimes they work in service with indigenous communities. But most of us don't. I mean, I'm a second-rate archaeologist of Roman stuff. So I can't really speak much to how things should be done. But you have people like Keisha Supernant at the University of Alberta and the Institute for Prairie Archaeology going to First Nations communities and listening to them and working with them in the service of the things that are important to that community. That's not necessarily enchantment. She talks about archaeologies of the heart where she's talking about what it means to do an affective rather than effective archaeology. You know, it's kind of funny that I come at a digital archaeology to be thinking about all of this stuff, but for a long time, I really had a hate on for the material that I worked with. And it was through digital stuff and, and seeing these things, this kind of uncanny intrusion of the past through my computer screen that enabled me to find some of the wonder and the power of archaeology again. I want that for other people. I want that for ordinary folks. I want you to sit down and play The Sims and think, oh my God, I could be using this to understand something. Enchantment comes from the political theorist Jane Bennett, and she writes about it as being a, something that inspires an ethics of generosity. If you're enchanted by something, you're opening yourself up. And frankly, that sounds way more interesting than writing three pieces of Vernicia narrowware found from Layer 2XB. Yes, that's important, but it's not the end all. It's the process. It's how we come to know. Because this is the whole thing about pseudo-archaeology. Pseudo-archaeology just jumps to the conclusion already and isn't interested. Sean, thank you so much for giving us your time today to talk about your work. We really appreciate it. For those of you out there listening, if you would like more information about Sean's work, you can visit electricarchaeology.ca. And archaeology is spelled A R C H A E O L O G Y dot C A. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. <laughs>